This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Dylan Penningroth. I'm a professor of law and history here at Berkeley, and I'm a member of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures Committee. Uh, the Jefferson Memorial Lectures were established in 1944 through a bequest from Elizabeth Bonestell and her husband, Cutler L. Bonestell. A prominent San Francisco couple, the Bonestells cared deeply for history and had hoped that the lectures would encourage students, faculty, scholars, and those in the community to study the legacy of Thomas Jefferson and to explore values inherent in American democracy. Past lecturers, including Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick, Senator Alan Simpson, Representative Tom Foley, Elizabeth Warren, Walter Lefebvre, and Archibald Cox, have delivered Jefferson Memorial Lectures on early American history, on Jefferson himself, and on American institutions and policies in politics, economics, education, and law. And we are pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present this year's speaker, in the lecture series, Professor Annette Gordon-Reed. Professor Reed is a renowned American historian and law professor at Harvard University, where she teaches criminal procedure, the legal profession, and American legal history. In 2010, she was awarded the National Humanities Medal and the MacArthur Fellowship. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2014, she was Harmsworth Visiting Professor at Queen's College, the University of Oxford. Now, I have a little story to tell, and that is that the first time I ever saw Professor Gordon Reed was in 1999. I was a brand new assistant professor at the University of Virginia. And my mentor at the time, Reginald Butler, in the History Department in African American Studies, told me about this big conference that was about to go down about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. So I went, I sat in the back, sort of in the right side of the back, and I was astonished. On stage was Professor Gordon Reed, who two years earlier I knew had published a book that had argued through painstaking forensic analysis of the available historical documents that Thomas Jefferson probably had a long-term sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, one of his slaves. Now, a retired UVA scientist had just released DNA tests that pointed to the same conclusion. Many of the people in the room that day pronounced themselves convinced now that there was DNA evidence. Me, I thought, why did it take DNA to convince you? Just read her book. So that was my introduction to Mr. Jefferson's university, but also to one of the most brilliant minds at the intersection of history and law, and I've been an admirer ever since. If her first book revealed that the historical profession could fall prey to arguments from authority and assumptions about character, her second book, the Hemingses of Monticello, an American family, recovered the lives of four generations of the Hemings family. Now, we historians of slavery, that's what I do, typically write about enslaved people or the slave community in a certain region or, at best, a certain plantation. 
This book was immediate, specific, and human. It was about, and I'll quote, how these particular African Americans made their way through slavery in America. In a sense, it told American history through the lives of specific African American people. And it deservedly won the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and 15 other honors. Professor Gordon Reed is now working on a second volume about the Hemings family that will take them into the 19th and 20th centuries. Her Jefferson lecture, titled Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of Imagination, will focus on Thomas Jefferson's vision for the United States of America and how race and slavery complicated his views of what kind of society was possible on the American continent. She'll speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have about 10 or 15 minutes for question and answer. And I'm going to ask that you please keep your questions short and keep them in the form of a question. <laughs> Without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Annette Gordon-Reed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for coming on coming inside on this beautiful day. It's absolutely gorgeous outside and I can kid my students sometimes and say we should have class outside, but we will we will stay inside and have this discussion. It's very very good to be here. And it's interesting for me because I've been talking about Jefferson recently with my co-author, Peter S. Ona, from Dill whom Dilling knows from the University of Virginia. Uh, Peter was the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation professor at uh, Virginia. He was the successor to Merrill Peterson, who was in turn the successor to Duma Malone, who wrote the great six-volume biography of Jefferson, Jefferson and His Time. And... I came to know Peter because of my first book. I wrote my manuscript, and I wanted to send it around to people whom I thought would be hostile to what I was saying, the critique of the historiography, the way historians had written about this subject. And I'm afraid I was a little stereotypical in my vision, a prejudiced in my vision. I assumed because he held that professorship that he would be inclined to dislike what I was saying. So I wanted people who would be skeptical to read the manuscript, so I sent it to him, and to my utter surprise, he actually liked it, and he recommended that it be published by the University Press of Virginia, which was important because this was Jefferson's university, and I decided to go with them instead of a trade publisher because I knew of the significance of that, of that connection. Peter and I have had a, been having a conversation about Jefferson now since 1995. It's a long time. We have been very, very good friends. Peter is an intellectual historian, and I do social history and political history. Uh, I read some of the same things that he reads, and he reads some of the same things that I read, but we have a different focus for the most part. So when Peter decided that he was thinking about retiring, which he has done, I said, we should put this down on paper. We had been complaining, thinking about the way people have written about Jefferson, the way that people tend to write about him now, in terms of paradox, the hypocrisy, that word hypocrisy. Well, he's a hypocrite. Um, and we thought that that term was too dismissive, that it sort of hid a lot of complexity, and it missed 
the value, both the good points and some of the flaws of Jefferson, but it missed the, mixed the complexity of this individual. So what we thought we would do would be to start anew and look at Jefferson, not from the perspective of what we thought he ought to be doing, he should have been doing, because I have a whole laundry list of things that I think he should have been doing, and Peter does too, um, that it would be interesting to sort of recapture, if we could, what Jefferson thought he was doing himself, what he thought he was doing in the world, and that that might give us some insight into where he went wrong, the ways we think of him going wrong, and the things that he did right. So Peter and I decided to collaborate on this project. It's not something that historians typically do, uh, although he has collaborated with his brother, but this was something that we wanted to do jointly, and our editor wanted us to have a single voice. So we sat on this project, set about on this project to do things in a collaborative way, writing sections and then rewriting others' work and going to the point that we don't really know, except for a few ticks that we, ver- we might have, we don't recognize who wrote what by the time we had gotten through all of this. And we decided that we wanted to use, as we would not be using secondary sources, that we would go back to Jefferson's letters, Jefferson's own words, and to try to figure this out, to figure this person out, uh, and to move beyond the ditch that I think that we have sort of run into in writing about Jefferson, talking about hypocrisy, which is a way of ending the conversation instead of opening the conversation. We take the title, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. The second part is we came up with. Most Blessed of the Patriarchs is in quotes, and we had to fight with our publisher about this because apparently it's not a good thing to put quotes in titles of books or whatever, but we said it, it's, it's from Jefferson. And I particularly did not want to be seen. It would be, it would be okay for Peter, perhaps, to have called him the most blessed of the patriarchs. It would not be something that an African-American woman could do uh, for an 18th century white slaveholder. And I wanted to make clear that it was not, we were not calling him most blessed of the patriarchs. He called himself that. And we fixed on this title. It comes from a letter that he wrote to Angelica Church, Angelica Schuyler Church, who of the Hamilton fame, if anybody's listened to the soundtrack, you know she's one of the Schuyler sisters, um, whom Jefferson knew when he was in Paris. And it's in 1793, he writes this letter to Angelica. He has been beaten up in the cabinet. Alexander Hamilton has bested him in his battle for uh, Washington's favor. And he's announcing his retirement to her. And he talks about you know, I have my fields to form um, and, you know, to watch for the happiness of the people, who, those who labor for my happiness, namely the enslaved people at Monticello. He also says, if I'm there and if my daughters join me, I will consider myself as blessed as the most blessed of the patriarchs. And we thought, that's an interesting phrase, most blessed of the patriarchs. And then there's another letter that he writes two years later where he describes himself as living like an antediluvian patriarch at Monticello, when he thought, a patriarch. When you think of patriarch, you think of someone from a religious figure from a long time ago, you know, or it conjures up in ancient times. And he's supposed to be the apostle of democracy. He is a Republican statesman. He, is, he believes in democracy, um, democracy with, you know, a, a Democrat. He was a Democrat with a little d. And how do you fit this notion of being a patriarch 
into this notion of being a Republican, a Republican life. Patriarchs have enormous amounts of land. They have a wife, maybe multiple wives, a concubine. He had lots of land. He had enslaved people. And he did have a, that word concubine. Uh, he's sort of saying this openly, describing himself as this figure. So we thought that we could use that as a title. The Empire of the Imagination is about Jefferson's vision for the country that he helped to found, that this is a person who did not travel west. He set Lewis and Clark west. He always believed that America would move west and would go from sea to shining sea. And he had an understanding about what the country would be. And it was mainly through his imaginative, his imagination, the books that he read, um, the things that were important to him, his understanding of life. That's what the empire of the imagination is about, is this visionary person who conjures up this image of what the new nation would be uh, in the future. So we decided to not to follow a sort of... Chrono- it's, a chron- it's a chronology. It's a chronologically inclined book, but it is not a straight you know, cradle-to-grave you know, he was born and then he dies kind of book. It's it's sort of thematic. And the first section of the book is called Patriarch, where we set out and try to discover what influences went into making Jefferson. He is born into a slave society. He is at the top of the social ladder, um, member of the Randolph family, a large and old family in Virginia. His father is not from at the highest strata, but he was a self-made man who had become wealthy, slave owner, and also a plantation owner and owned a lot of land. Um, But he made his money as a surveyor and uh, as a planter. He is intelligent. He had the best kind of education that you could have for people in Virginia at the time. He was tall, which seems like you know, I guess it makes a difference even today, but it certainly made a difference at the time to be six feet two and a half inches tall. Um, and he was the actual owner of human beings. He had the power, legal ownership over human beings, and he was male, and he was a first son at a time when that mattered as well. So all of these influences, these things come into making him, giving him his vision of himself, um, the society he was born into, his the resources that he has, physical, uh, physical, intellectual, and financial, make him who, give him an idea of who he's supposed to be in the world. An enormous amount of confidence. Some people might say arrogance, but it's all there in this package. The other thing about him is that he loves to read, and he considers himself to be a member, a, a sort of a adherent to the Enlightenment. He believes in science, and science shapes his view of the world. Scientific advances... We will discover things. We will know new things. We, he believed in something that I'm not sure that we actually believe in, and that's sort of a straight line of progress, that things are going to get better and better and better inevitably. Well, we know that it doesn't, <laughs> that's not necessarily so, um, that it, you know, it's maybe three steps forward, you know, four steps backwards, side over here, and, and it's, it's a rocky road to progress. He believed that progress would come. As people became more educated, they would become more enlightened. And that's the age that he lives in, is reading all of these books, reading the books of of famous scientists, uh, historians, Bacon, Locke, uh, Newton, that this was inevitable. 
And that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And one of the tenets of, well, a couple of the tenets that he adheres to in the Enlightenment is skepticism about religion, uh, sort of a um, hostility towards organized religion. People think Jefferson was an atheist. He was not an atheist, but he was hostile to organized religion because he thought organized religion, priests were people who put themselves between individuals and God that everybody had to think for himself or herself, and you did not need an interlocutor. You didn't need that intermediation between, uh, uh, the mediation between uh, the person and God. So skepticism about religion he sees as an enlightenment virtue. Um, And then also anti-slavery. And this is a a real problem that Jefferson has today because people say, how could he be anti-slavery? That's all a ruse uh, and the, but the question is, if that's the case, who is he playing to, right? I mean, there's sort of idea that he's trying to fool us, but he doesn't know who we are. I mean, he has no assurance of how people are going to feel about that. He actually believed that slavery was a backward institution and that if he, in believing in progress, eventually it would go away. And this starts even before he's in public life. Uh, when he was in his 20s, he writes in his legal commonplace book. He's, he puts down, he copies down a poem by a man named William Shinstone, or actually some stanzas from the poem, that talk about um, an African ripped from his native land, brought across the, sh- the sea, forced to work, for, to labor for another. And this is when he's in his 20s. There's nobody looking at this point. You know, there's no public persona here. This is a part of his, the beginning of his understanding of who, who he was. I'm, it's like announcing yourself to be a liberal <laughs> in a way. These are the things that we believe, and anti-slavery was one of them. My colleague and friend David Koenig is now working on Jefferson's um, um, legal career, something that has been, a couple of books have been written about it, but his legal commonplace book has now just been, is being edited. And so there's a lot of material that David is going through now. And he is, it's his um, contention that as a lawyer, Jefferson did things, made arguments that were designed to sort of chip away at slavery um, as lawyers, as far as he could go with the law. Uh, Howell v. Netherland is the most famous of his cases. He was representing uh, a mixed-race man who was seeking his freedom, and he tries to make this argument about all men are created equal. He uses language that would be in the Declaration. This is years before um, the Revolution. So this stuff is in his head. These ideas are in his head, even as a young man, even before anybody's looking. So to say that this is just a pose, that this was just a pose for later generations or even for people in the 1780s uh, when he's in France is really not quite right because he's doing this even before all of this gets started. So David's book will be addressing all of this. So this is a young man who has this vision of himself as a progressive. And then something happens in his life that galvanizes him and really becomes the key to who he was for the rest of his life, and that's the American Revolution his involvement in the American Revolution. That was something that gave Jefferson his sense of himself, and it was the most important thing in his life. There's no question about that. I mean, besides his daughters, Martha, and, you know, besides that, but the most, the, the most important political act of his life, and it sort of defined who he was. 
he sees himself as a revolutionary, as having been a part of creating something great. And this is his obsession for the rest of his life. Preserving that is his obsession for the rest of his life. We are obsessed with slavery, and I think rightly so, because it's such a such an, an integral part of the beginning of the United States of America. We are, we are obsessed with race because that's the problem that we have, that we're still trying to struggle with. He was not obsessed with either one of those things. He was obsessed with the revolution, that we have created a country. And at some point, he discovers, or he tends to, comes to believe, that there are forces that are counter-revolutionary that people who are trying to destroy the revolution, namely that person who has a hit musical now on Broadway <laughs> and a uh, number one soundtrack, whatever, for a uh, you know, cast album, Hamilton. And, and, do, did somebody hiss? <laughs> did somebody begin to hiss? Boo, hiss Hamilton, no. Uh, none of the Battle of the Network founding fathers. We don't have to, we don't have to do that. Um, so... The revolution galvanizes Jefferson. It gives him his sense of identity. He embarks upon politics. He gets involved with politics to defend that revolution. As a politician, that's what he thinks his job is. But something else happens to him along the way. He begins to see, he he has to have a different attitude about African Americans. He writes at some point that before the revolution, during the colonial period, that we, meaning white Virginians, thought of them as cattle. That they didn't have the, that he didn't, now Jefferson exaggerates. He has a tendency to exaggerate, but what he's basically saying is that people's attitudes about enslaved people changed after the revolution. And what's changed was that blacks began to join the British. Blacks began to use their agency, sort of voting with their feet, essentially, to join Lord Dunmore and anyone else who offered to give them freedom. And uh, I'm reading, I've read a wonderful book by a a man named Robert Parkinson. Uh, It's called Common Cause, Creating Race and Nation in the United States. And so what he talks about is how the involvement of Native Americans and African Americans on the side of the British become a sort of rallying cry for white Americans who see this as uh, you see this as sort of traitorous activities, and it's the beginning of creating or making sure that blacks and Native Americans are seen as being outside of the American people, something other than the American people. So Jefferson begins to, to understand that they are living amidst enemies, potential enemies, that is to say African Americans, Virginians, who were about 40% of the population during Jefferson's time in South Carolina, it's two to one. By the time they get to the antebellum period, it's three to one. Um, so this is a huge internal enemy, what Alan Taylor, another historian, has called the internal enemy, that they are there. And he begins to see them in a different way. So the urgency about ending slavery, which before was just sort of a, a quiver in the arrow of progressives, becomes something that he thinks uh, in the... He begins to think is... Um, I should say an arrow in the quiver of progressives. I got that backwards. Um, he, he sees as a threat. We have to do something about this because these people, we are at war. Slavery is a state of war. That's a Lockean formulation. Most people became slaves in the ancient world after a war. 
and they were taken prisoners, and you can, you, it was almost a merciful thing to make a person a slave instead of killing them, which you would have a right to do. Uh, and certainly, slavery was a continuation, was some form of continuation of, of war. So African Americans and white Americans existed in a state of war so long as you had slavery. And he did not believe that African Americans, uh, after emancipation, would be able to love a country where they had been treated as they had been treated. So you couldn't have love of country, which is required to be a patriot, required to be a citizen. White people would never give up their prejudices against black people. There could be no wholesale mixing between black and white. We could talk about that later. Um, He couldn't see that as a possibility. A country had to be comprised of people. A country was sort of a, a larger version of a family. You start with the family as the basic unit, then you have a community, and then you radiate out to the nation as a whole. How can you be citizens, equal citizens in a country, if you cannot form families with people? It's those affectionate ties. It's those, that capacity is what makes the people together. How do you say we're all equal, but you can't be my daughter-in-law, you can't be my son-in-law, you can't be in my family? Now, he didn't know that we would figure out how to do that, but at his time period, he couldn't see that, nor could he see the idea of having first-class and second-class citizens. You either are a citizen or you're not. That makes his understanding about what had to happen and the thing that also gives people a problem about Jefferson, namely, you had to emancipate enslaved people, but they had to be expatriated. Blacks and whites could not live together, he thought, without conflict. And those words and notes in the state of Virginia, he, was th- he thought that people would be upset to the extent that he was thinking about posterity, and he did think about posterity. He thought that people might be upset, and certainly his contemporaries might be upset about the criticisms that he made of slavery. He would be surprised, I think, to know the extent to which we focus on that part of the equation when he says emancipate. He thought he would be great. I'm for emancipation, but they have to go somewhere else. That's the part of, uh, of, the, of the equation that, um, that causes him problems today. But he did not think that we could live together in harmony. Now, this has caused a lot of criticism of Jefferson, but we, if we're honest with ourselves, he also thought that if you tried to do this, that there might actually be a race war, you know, that there would be conflict, and then one side would kill the other side. And he basically says, you know, sort of in a prophetic way, there is no aspect of the Almighty that could take our side in this struggle because whites were wrong. I mean, slave owners were wrong to do this. So this is a problem that we have with him, and we sort of, I think, congratulate ourselves in saying that we're better than that. But the truth is, we may not have had a race war like, you know, the Battle of Antietam or whatever, you know, or Gettysburg, but we have had a huge amount of conflicts. We still have enormous amount of conflicts um, uh, between blacks and whites. And if you think about what happened after Reconstruction, about lynching, uh, Jim Crow, there's been a cold war and a hot war in a lot of ways. Uh, it has not been easy. So this notion that this was crazy 
that blacks and whites would have difficulty living together uh, without conflict is not as crazy as we like to make it out to be. This is something we are still trying to figure out how to bring black people into citizenship. I mean, that is about a lot of what is going on now with all of the the terrible videos that we're seeing, uh, the police encounters with um, with black uh, citizens, uh, the the difference between whatever you think about the Second Amendment, it is pretty clear that African-American men do not have the same freedom to carry weapons about as, uh, as white men do. So black citizenship today is still something that we're trying to work out. So Jefferson's born in 1743 into a slave society. He's trying to figure out how all of this will work, not to make excuses for him, but I think we're not as far along as we should be. I mean, you know, this is a person who never saw a train um, and we've had an opportunity, many opportunities, to know better than some of the ways that we act, and we, and we, we don't as of yet. So this is his vision of what is going to be the solution, even though as he gets older, he understands that it's really, it's really not going to happen. The numbers are too great. One of the last letters that he writes, he talks about, you know, he's sort of doing the math and figuring out that this is not, really feasible, even though he thinks that this is the best solution. Uh, he says, we're going to get to a point. We must do something because we'll get to a point where one million, he says, fighting men will say, we will not go. African-American men might just say, we're not going to go. And then, then a problem really starts. So Jefferson has a conception of the United States after as a revolutionary, then as a politician, as, he try, as he's trying to preserve this notion of Republican government. And of course, in Republican government, the majority rules. People have to vote. Uh, people would have to vote slavery out. He discovers and understands pretty clearly, pretty early on, as a, uh, as a young man, he, as a legislator, he tries to introduce a law to put in place his gradual emancipation plan, and it goes absolutely nowhere. And then later on, another man, St. George Tucker, in the 1790s tries to do a similar thing, and it goes absolutely nowhere. So at some point, Jefferson realizes that this is not, we're not going to have a Republican solution. We're not likely to have a Republican solution to this problem in his lifetime. Virginians were not going to vote slavery out. And people say, well, you know, There are plenty of things that you could say are never going to happen, but they won't happen unless you try, right? He's faulted for not making the effort. But keep in mind what I said about his real obsession, and that's the United States of America. You created this country, and you want to get this country on its feet. And then you say, and what he says is, this is a problem that's going to work itself out. And if you think about the way, it's not uncommon for people to say, all right, there's this one thing that I want to fixate on, and if I could just fix that, this other little thing over here is going to take care of itself. And it's that little thing over here that's the real problem, and that's slavery. He thinks slavery is going to work itself out by enlightenment, education. People will come to understand that this has to end, that this is a backward system, and it will end. Now, of course, we know it wasn't a backward system. We know uh, with the cotton gin, 
uh, when he buys Louisiana and cotton becomes king. I mean, he doesn't, he, he he's lives long enough to see the beginning in the, of the rise in the prices of, of, of enslaved people. He doesn't live to see the antebellum period when slavery is a really prosperous institution, but he holds on to this idea that it is, because it's ancient and it, it is backwards, it is going to go away. That's his understanding of it. So I'm going to focus on those Federalists over here. And he says when he's elected president, he's going to sink Federalism into an abyss from which it will never you know, arise. And he does. He basically kills the Federalist Party. It's over uh, for them. And we have Jefferson, and then we have Madison, we have Monroe. Um, there's a brief period with John Quincy Adams. And then we have Jackson, who considers himself a Jeffersonian. So we ha- he has a record for his political party and his political ideals that last longer than anybody. Nobody's ever replicated that, had uh, a political influence that lasted for as long as his did through him, himself and his various surrogates through this. So he's fixated on politics, not upon you know, slavery, politics in terms of federalism versus republicanism. Getting rid of the monarchy is the equivalent of fighting communism to him. That is his obsession. He thought, you know, most of human history has been ruled by, uh, people have been ruled by these monarchs who have dragged people into war European battles, uh, power politics from, you know, wars, kings. We're going to get away from all of that, and we're going to do something. We're going to have an empire for liberty, is what he calls it. And he wants it to be from sea to shining sea because he doesn't want Spain and France and other people interfering on American land. If you had separate, if you had country was divided up, that they would fall prey to European power politics. So that's his vision, and slavery is something that recedes, his anti-slavery recedes into the background uh, after he becomes a politician. We also think, we talk about the second part of the book, the other influence on him is not just his, his republicanism and his revolutionary, his focus, his fix, fixation on the United States as a country, is France. He goes to France, and while he is there, he is shocked by French society. He's shocked by the women who are, he says, out in the streets, meddling in politics, leaving what's important in their nurseries behind, you know, searching for pleasure in the streets. You know, women, upper-class women did not go around by themselves. They went around escorted. So when he talks about women in the streets, it makes it sound almost like they're prostitutes because they're seeking pleasure in the streets. And this horrifies him. You know, when he comes to, I should say, he goes to France in a sort of foul mood. His wife has died. There had been, he had a terrible time as governor, uh, had, wasn't very successful as governor, and he was a little angry with Virginians at, Virginians at this time. When he goes to France, he had this sort of epiphany, the sort of thing that happens when you, you have complaints about your country and then you go to another country and you say, well, at least we're not doing that. That, that was his attitude about, uh, about France, and he sees people starving. This is pre-revolutionary France, the 1780s. Um, people are starving in the streets. They're riots. They're bread riots. And he says, you know, we don't have this in America. We have enslaved people. But he thinks about himself as an, a, a slave owner, and he sees himself in that term that we sort of, you know, ridicule as a benevolent 
patriarch. That's his construction of himself. And he says, well, what we can do is we can hold on until public opinion changes and we can do something about slavery. But we don't have women running crazy. We don't have people starving in the streets. The other thing that happens while he's in France is that he's there with James Hemings and Sally Hemings. James and Sally Hemings are the half-siblings to his wife, to his deceased wife. Martha Wales Jefferson's father, John Wales, had six children with Elizabeth Hemings, and the youngest was Sarah Hemings, or Sally Hemings, and James was one of the sons. Jefferson brought him to France to learn how to be a cook, a chef, a French chef, and Sally Hemings came over accompanying Jefferson's daughters as the companion to Jefferson's daughters. While they are there, he pays them wages, and James has free movement in France. So Jefferson, the other thing that Peter and I argue is that they become the faces of slavery to him, his understanding about himself as a slaveholder in this kind of weird state where people, he owns them by Virginia law, but they're in this place where they are potentially free because any enslaved person who petitioned for freedom in Paris in the 18th century, all of them, the petitions were granted. So all they had to do was to go to the Admiralty Court and they would be free people. At some point, Madison Hemings, who is the son of, was the son of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, who's telling the story of his parents, says Je- uh, Sally Hemings becomes pregnant by Jefferson near the end of their stay. And she does not want to come back to the United States with Jefferson because she knows that any child she has in Virginia will be enslaved. Virginia followed the rule, part of sequitur ventrum. You are what your mother was. This was not the rule that the colonists came over with, the English rule that they came over with, which was you were what your father was. But you can think about how part of sequitur ventrum is better It makes for things more manageable if you're creating a slave society. The sexuality of women was much more controlled by society than males. You would have, and and, and of course men can have many more children than women can have. You would potentially have a large class of mixed race free people, which they did not want. So she understood what the situation would be if she went back to France with this child and any other children that she any other children that she had. So Jefferson promises her that if she comes back with him, she would have a good life at Monticello and that the children would be freed when they were twenty one. They would live with them and they would leave as adults. Now she accepts this and this was a sort of a difficult thing for me when I was writing my first book to understand, but it wasn't until I started working on the Hemings as a Monticello that I, when you're doing a biography, you have to sort of move yourself out, <laughs> stand aside, and not talk about what you would do, or what, again, what you think other people ought to do, because I would have said, stay in France. <laughs> but then I can't say that because I know some of their descendants, and that would be like saying, I wish you were not here. Um, but you know, that would be the logical thing to do. But when I began to work on the book and I saw how he had treated her family, her brothers, James I mentioned and Robert and Martin, even before he went to France, James and Martin and Robert, uh, lots of times Jefferson didn't even know where they were. 
they hired their own time. They traveled around. They didn't live, I mean, they were enslaved by law. Obviously, they were enslaved, but they didn't have a life like other people down the mountain. I think Jefferson, the word co-opted is, is maybe pejorative, but he treated the Hemingses in a different enough way that they began to see themselves as a cast apart. She had seen him treat her brothers in this fashion, and I think Madison Hemings said she trusted him implicitly, and that's another thing that you kind of pause over and say, why would you trust him? But when I began to look at the family and how he treated them, if you're 16, which is another point, now 16 is, is very young. Uh, 16 is not in the 1780s, is not 16 today. I mean, we've sort of extended childhood to the 30s, maybe, uh, <laughs> 40. I mean, the New York Times had an article uh, some, a few months back about people who still go to their pediatricians when they're like 29 years old because <laughs> they're just used to them. And, and it's, it's, it's weird because, you know, there are all kinds of adult problems that pediatricians don't know anything about. But that's a diversion. The point is, she's 16, and when I was writing the Hemingses, my daughter was about 15 or 16. So, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know, this is, this is horrible, you know, to, to, to contemplate, to think about. But she wouldn't have thought of herself as a child, and he wouldn't have thought of her as a child. The age of consent in Virginia at this time period was 10. The age, they raised it to 12 in the 1820s. Um, there was a different understanding about what women... I mean, women didn't go to college. They didn't have careers. They didn't, I mean, there was a different understanding. But it's still young for a, a, a person to make this kind of choice, uh, make this decision. And James Hemings, we write about the fact that James Hemings was doing things at this time. We don't have his words, but he's doing things at the time that indicate that he wants to stay there. He hires a tutor to teach him proper French. Now, he's been trained as a chef, and um, so it's much more likely that the two of them had this idea that they were going to stay. But Jefferson persuades them to come back, uh, persuades her to come back with him, and which she does. And Peter and I think that the combination of his disdain for French society, his capacity to take these two really anomalous people, people whose lives are not like, I mean, they're enslaved, though there's the law, but he's not treating them like other people down the mountain. And they are the faces of slavery for him. And by the time he comes back, he's thinking not about getting rid of slavery. He's thinking about ways to make slavery easier for African-American women by planting olive trees, so that, <laughs> which are easy to pick. Olives are apparently not onerous uh, uh, to pick. So he's thinking about ways to ameliorate slavery. And once you begin to think of yourself as someone who is making slavery better, you're pretty much lost. I mean, you're, you, all of the kind of things you do to help, all the little, you know, uh, gratuities that you give, all the leniences that you give, all those kinds of things allow you to pat yourself on the back and say, I'm a good slave owner. And a good slave owner is, that's not something that he would have as a young man, slavery was a state of war. Slavery was an evil. Slavery was not something that could be made better. But after France, that's what he, he believes. And he comes back to Virginia. 
determined to be a good slave owner. And by the time of his death, uh, he is convinced that that is what he's doing. He doesn't have the faith in the end that, by the, you know, even before the end, that this is going to end in any kind of uh, Republican sort of way. But he keeps this faith that something's going to happen in the future. Now, again, this is not satisfactory to us because we want him, we want him to be better. I was at Monticello, oh, two weeks ago. Uh, it was just a week ago. It just seems, uh, I've been so many places since this time. There was a summit there at Monticello that is actually online, if you, and I think it might be interesting to watch. It was a summit on slavery and the legacy of race, uh, the legacy of slavery and race in the United States at Monticello. 2,100 people came on the West Lawn, people of all races, uh, members of the Hemings family, descendants, and so forth, and members of the public and everybody. There were two panels. Uh, really an amazing time. I, I was given the chance to sum everything up, and I had to say I could not believe. Uh, I would never have believed when Dylan was talking about the conference, that the somewhat raucous conference uh, that he's describing here, that we would be standing on the lawn at Monticello, that there would be in the visitor center a gigantic family tree of the Hemings family with Jefferson on it, and a film that talks about him being the father of Sally Hemings' children and trying to reckon with this legacy of this person, you know, who is good and bad. Uh, there's a lot of talk about you know, moving statues and changing names and so forth, but he is so central to American, the American story that I think, for me, it's better to sort of look at him and talk about all of the problems that we're having because every single thing that we're talking about today were things that he anticipated in the area of race, the difficulty of fitting blacks into the society, um, questions of gender, questions of republicanism and, and citizenship. All of those things are in his story. And what Peter and I wanted to capture, to sort of recapture, was why this person was important, not just as a whipping boy, not as somebody to just criticize, but a person whose life can explicate who we really are. I mean, there was a, a saying that, you know, that, that sort of collapses Jefferson uh, into America. Jefferson is sort of an, an exemplar of, of America, and I really do think that's true. I mean, it's sort of unfair to him as a person to sort of carry the legacy of an entire country but, uh, or to be compared to an entire country, but studying his life is a way of studying us. And it's endlessly fascinating, and I think it's just endlessly important as well. So I would like to stop talking now, and I would like to hear your questions. You talk about uh, Jefferson's view of slavery evolving mm -hmm. over his lifetime. Do you see any connection between his evolving economic circumstances and his evolving view of slavery? Well, his economic circumstances didn't uh, really evolve other than to get worse and worse. Uh, I don't think... The problem is Jefferson didn't think enough about economics. Jefferson didn't really understand economics. Jefferson had uh, memorandum books where he kept a record of every single expenditure that he ever made, but he never 
added anything up. <laughs> so it's like you go out and you buy $3.50 for a cappuccino and you put down the date, you know, and everything, but you never, you never have any sense of where you are. When he left the presidency, there is one time he did decide to total things up, and he was shocked at how broke he was. Um, he didn't, money, you know, he talked a lot about money and wanting money, but he didn't spend as much energy on that as he did writing about politics and participating in the, in the Republic of Letters. Um, Monticello was not a prosperous farm. Farm. Most of the people at Monticello, a good, he had a very relatively few people. He didn't have as many people in the fields as he should have. We're talking about this as, as he should have been doing this, but many people in the fields as he needed to actually be prosperous. Most of the people there were working on the house and doing his mechanical things that were not really prosperous. He had a nail factory. Uh, that was prosperous for a time, and then the British started selling nails and sort of basically ruined his market. I don't, I don't think his, his attitude about slavery... I mean, there's some arguments that he, he became wedded to slavery because it was more profitable. He realized it was profitable, but it, but it wasn't really for him. Um, I guess the suggestion that he was making a certain percentage of money uh, a 4% plan or something like that, that he was making a lot of money, and which is not a great return on investment. The people who were really prosperous had seven or eight. I mean, that, it was much bigger than that. I just don't think that he, he talked about economics, but it really, money was not a driving force in his life because if it had been, he would have done, he, was, he would have been more attentive to it. When his grandson takes over the farm, in the 18-teens, production went up like three times. He just wasn't attentive to it at all. He talked a game, you know, he talked around it, but he, you know when Jefferson is obsessed about something. Because you know it, because you know what he's doing. You could see him, he's counting the peas, the, the number of peas in a, in a peck, of pe- you know, individually counting them out. That kind of focus. He didn't have that for the economics, or he would have been in a better situation. Hi there. Uh, you made the point earlier that Jefferson targeted a lot of his firepower on the Federalists. I'm curious, you know, was there anyone that he grappled with to his other flank, whichever side that would be, that was more of a Calhounian stripe, a more positive good view of slavery, if Jefferson was more of a, more of a gradual extinction, necessary evil? And maybe if you could provide any insight into that, also, how would he have responded to those arguments in the context of the brewing Civil War? Mm-hmm. You know, th- that's... Well, the founding generation was of the view that slavery was a necessary evil, right? I mean, the South Carolinians were into it, but people, people in, the, uh, in Virginia, um, that was their story, that this was a necessary evil that was eventually going to go away. It was a back... It's like, think of something backwards we do now, that we say, oh, one of these days people aren't going to do that anymore. Um, he dies before we really begin to get the pro-slavery ideology. He just misses the real, you know, uh, Thomas Dew and, and his own grandchildren 
um, who began to shift over his, well, his eldest grandson uh, introduces an emancipation plan. His grandfather's emancipation plan uh, tries to introduce that in, the, in, a, in a sort of constitutional convention they have after Jefferson dies. Uh, but no, he was, slavery was a necessary evil, and he misses the beginning, the nascent pro-slavery ideology. How he would have responded to it, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, people ask, you know, how would he have responded to the war? You know, what would he have done? Um, it would have been excruciating for him. I mean, he hated, hated England. And the idea that the, the South at some point is making overtures to England, or the idea that any one of those sides would have been relying on the Europeans to help them, that was the whole point of the revolution, is to, is to separate, to get out of that. On the other hand, he loved Virginia. So it would have been the patriotic love of his country, what, the place that he knew as his country first, against his hatred of the idea of Americans, you know, siding with Europeans against one another. Um, I, don't, I don't know what he would have done. His granddaughter, Ellen Coolidge, was a unionist, but then she'd moved to, uh, to Massachusetts. His grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, was a Confederate, and his youngest uh, grandson, uh, George With Randolph, uh, was the Secretary of the Confederacy. Um, so... Even the grandchildren were, were split on all of that. But I know it would have been excruciating for him because and he, when he writes uh, about the Missouri Compromise, the, uh, the controversy in, in, in between 1819 and the, the firebell in the night letter, he says this is like a firebell in the night. You can hear the anguish because he's realizing they're going to go to war about this. You know, all this thing where he's saying, oh, we're eventually going to come to some amicable agreement about it. He realizes... That's not going to happen. The only way, this is the, it, it's the death knell. It'll be the rock upon which the Union will split. And that was a horrifying notion to him. Um, on a more domestic area level, um, you talk about his progeny, and I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about if, how he may have felt about his children that he had with Sally. Mm-hmm. Um, how many, I, I'm not clear about how many he had, but was he, it's, I, I try to imagine how he would feel about these children mm-hmm. who are his and grandchildren who are also his, mm-hmm. you know, given the times. Yeah, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. I mean, the idea of having um, children or family members that are your legal, that you legally own. Now, of course, parents don't own their kids, but that, that, you know, the power over kids is something that, you know, obviously that would, would have existed among his legal children. Madison Hemings said that he was not in the habit of showing us partiality or fatherly affection. And then he compares, he said, but he was affectionate with his grandchildren. Now, his grandchildren are, were um, of the same generation, pretty much as, as the Hemings children. So what he he seems to be talking about is the fact that Jefferson was, you know, he bounced him on the knee and patted him on the head and did all these kinds of things. Contingency is so important, as historians always know. Um, I think it's really significant that Jefferson's legal daughter, Martha, when her husband fails, essentially, they have to move back to Monticello. So in 1809, she moves 
her family, the husband and all the kids into Monticello. And that, and I wonder what would have happened to the Hemings children. There were, Sally Hemings had seven children, four of them lived to adulthood. If their lives would have been different if the legal white grandchildren had not been in the same place. Because there's no way that a man of that class, that man of that, he, he could not treat those children the same way he treats his legal white grandchildren. I mean, it might be bad enough that he has a mistress. His, his daughter's aunt, if you think about this. So, you know, this is all speculation on my part, but I, I just can't see how he, he could have treated them exactly the same, treated them like white kids, because Martha wouldn't have liked that. What I do know from doing... I hadn't paid very much attention to this because I was doing something different in the first book. There are a series of letters that Jefferson writes to his overseer at Poplar Forest, and he's talking about his coming visits, and he will say, I'm coming with Johnny Hemings and his assistants. Johnny Hemings' assistants were Madison, depending upon the years, were Beverly, Madison, and Eston, the sons. Jefferson had put them under the tutelage of John Hemings. John Hemings was his favorite artisan, and he spent a lot of time, Jefferson was a woodworker himself, he spent a lot of time with them. So he takes these young men and puts them under the tutelage of a person that he is with a lot. So he's with them a lot. So they go to Poplar Forest, they are isolated, it's 90 miles from Monticello, Monticello's in the woods, this is even more in the woods. So he's there with them for weeks at a time. So we don't know what it's like. All three of them play the violin as he played the violin. They're named for his favorite cousins and best friends. Madison Hemings is James Madison Hemings. Um, Beverly, the eldest son, is described at one point you know, as ascending a hot air balloon after he escapes from Monticello, they basically leave to live as white people. Beverly and Harriet were the two oldest who went to live as white people, and we know nothing about them because they have no freedom papers, there's no paper record. They disappeared into whiteness, and we don't know anything about them. So hot air ballooning was the Jefferson fascination. Uh, He was obsessed with that. So there are these little... Eston Hemings uh, made his living as a musician in Ohio, and his signature tune was a, a song called Money Musk. And that was one of the few songs that Jefferson copied out by hand in his, you know, he didn't really care for popular music as much. He liked classical music. Um, that was one of the few songs that he copied out in his own hand in his music book. So all these little tantalizing things that c- suggest that he is connecting to them. Um, but we don't, he can't write about that. He could not write about this. And uh, Madison doesn't talk about this except to pair, compare himself to the grandchildren, and he's sort of like the typical grandfather, but a father you, who you sort of see as, you get the sense that he's sort of training them, making sure they're trained to do things. Uh, they're never servants, but they're trained as carpenters. If they were to show up today, they'd have a job. <laughs> you know, not, as a, not working with a blacksmith not working with the horses or whatever, but something that he knew um, would always be needed. So we don't, we, we don't really know other than those little bits of 
other than the fact that he makes them, he puts themselves in their lives. Thank you. Yes. Um, welcome, Professor Reed, to the Bay Area. Um, just a quick question, maybe a, a plea for help. Uh, <laughs> Jefferson's always been, you know, someone that I always admired, his writings, you know, um, founding father. And, you know, I had a couple kids, and I try to pass that on to them. Now they're in the university, and, you know, you're right. It's hard for them to get over the whole stain of slavery. And every time I bring Jefferson up, you know, they... They throw it back in my face. So I was going to ask your assistance how. Well, I, I mean, how to he's maybe, a slave owner. <laughs> is there anything that you would still try to maybe convey to younger people about the importance and what he meant? Uh, my daughter's in the audience, so you could just. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give up. Um, well, because there isn't. The, um, he's at the center of so much. It, that's in America. I mean, history is not just about your best BFF. I mean, the people that you like the best and want to have fun with. I mean, there's a lot to admire, but there's a lot to be concerned about. And I think he's an important figure for grappling with serious, serious issues. He's also been made, I think, the fall guy for race and slavery. Because it's easy. I mean, one of the interesting things about Hamilton, the play, has anybody seen that? Has anybody been? Yeah, yeah, so a few people. Lucky people, but not to see it. Um, if you did not know American history, you would think the only slave owner up on that stage was Jefferson. Ha- Washington is not linked to slavery. Madison is not linked to slavery. Um, or the sort of racial attitudes that Jefferson has that, as a racist, th- these were the, this is the, he's garden variety. He's a, I've called him one time in, my, in, in an article, a garden variety white guy. And a church in Greenwich Village put that up on, a, on their little thing. Jefferson, garden variety white guy. No, I, and people want to suggest, you know, when he says, you know, white people may be smarter than, I venture it as a suspicion only that whites are, more, are smarter than blacks. Well, of course he believed that whites were smarter than blacks or better looking and all that. These are, I mean, what has this all been about if a critical mass of white people haven't felt those exact things? And it's sort of not, it's sort of running away from the pervasiveness of that idea to sort of say, well, there was this Garden of Eden and then the serpent came in and it was Jefferson and then all of a sudden white people became racist. Is like... <laughs> No, no, that's not, that's not what happened. The reason he was a popular politician is because he knew his people. He understood what they wanted. And that's what he, that's what he did. Once he realized they're not going for this, they're not going to vote slavery out. He's like, I'm out of it. I'm over here with the Federalists and the judiciary and all these other structural civics type things uh, that he's fixated on. So I, I think... You don't really, ha- my, my home state wanted to take him out of the history books. I'm from Texas, and they wanted to, and everybody laughs. <laughs> um, they wanted to take him out of the history books, and they replaced him with John Calvin, and um, that noted American, John Calvin, um, because of, mainly because of his views about religion, but I also think Sally is part of it as well. Um, but you can't do that. There is no American history without Jefferson. 
You know, I mean, you, if he doesn't, if he's not in American history books, nobody belongs in an American history book. You just can't do it. You know, it's like, you know, we're going to have the Mao and the Long March, and anytime somebody's disfavored, they kind of get airbrushed out of the picture. We can't do that with him because he's too central to it. And their problems, it doesn't mean that you have to admire or worship anybody. That's not the goal of it. The goal is to grapple seriously with the, the people who helped make the country and put us on the road that we've been on. So you don't have to like him. I mean, a lot of people like him. Uh, a lot of people love him. A lot of people loathe him. But you, you have to recognize the importance. And going through all of these, the, the, the words, the things that are hurtful, all those kinds of things, they're real. And you should, I just don't think you should, you should run away from, with that. Now, they're different. I'm always asked now about you know, who should be, whose name should come down. Who should, you know, I was up at Yale not long ago, and I've said this before. I mean, John Calhoun can go. I mean, there's all the difference in the world between being one of the founders of the United States and somebody who tried to destroy the United States. I mean, we don't have to have monuments to those people. Um, it's just, I mean, you can remember them in a different way. But I think we, we will be hiding something from ourselves if we don't grapple with him. And it's not about love. It's about understanding the importance of this figure. I'm trying to get a better understanding of the relationship between Sally Hemings and Jefferson. I know on her deathbed that his wife um, got a promise that he would never marry again. So uh, Sally Hemings was the nursemaid for his children, and she was a comfort in his bed. What else was she? Did he, he was such an intellectual Mm-hmm. Did he try and educate her in any way? What was that relationship like other than being in bed? We don't really know what their relationship was like because he never wrote about it. She never wrote about it. Madison describes, Madison Hemings describes her as taking care of Jefferson's rooms and sewing. I mean, she's, he's describing the life of a housewife. And I don't want to say wife, but a, a, a person who is basically taking care of this guy and who is her master. And once she comes back from France, she's totally under his control. Uh, but I guess you could say, and people have pointed out to me when I say that, is that when men married women, the women were totally, I mean, they could, you couldn't refuse sex. I mean, the only thing that couldn't happen is that you couldn't be sold. I mean, you could apply moderate correction. Or, I mean, there's a difference between being a slave and a wife, but we're talking, <laughs> people are sort of twittering here uh, on that, but there are gradations of subordination and unfreedom there. So we don't know anything about this other than the fact that when he comes back, there are no stories with him about other women. Um, there, are no, there appear to be no other successive generations of Sally's. And you would think, and maybe I'm, this is my modern sensibility to this, that I, I, it's just hard to imagine that he had a purely sexual relationship or sexual attraction to her for 38 years. That, that's typically not 
the way that works. I say in my first book, lust could last 20 minutes, you know, 20 days or 20 months, but not, you know, 20 years. That's the span of her childbearing. And she was his wife's half-sister. I mean, that's the other thing that's not thought about enough in this is what is going on here with this person who has taken up with his wife's, his, deceased, his beloved deceased wife's sister, that he's, it, I think it would be impossible for him to look at her without making the connection to his wife. So um, we don't know that that's what that role, that played in it. We do, the only thing gestured towards him is that she comes back here, and that could have been because of him, or it could have been, and I talk in the book about whether or not this was to be with her family. When she dies, she gives items that belong to Jefferson to her children that she has kept, that she gives to her children, which is sort of a way of keeping, I mean, it's like a memorial thing in, in a way. Um, people say, talk about Stockholm Syndrome, but it, it could just be a person making the best deal that she could make in her life, that women, women did that all the time, marrying people, this is the best thing that I'm going to do. Sally Hemings was one quarter uh, black. I mean, her father was a white man. Her fathers were white men. Who do we think, why, I mean, why do we assume that her ideal, her understanding of who she would end up with, with would be a black man? We've constructed race in a particular way. And if it was going to be a white man, why wouldn't he be as good as any other one? Could I mean, she read English? We don't know. Her brothers could. Her brothers were literate. But she we don't have French? any. Yeah, she spoke French. Okay. But we don't have any. We have no letters from her. Um, Robert and James were, were literate. Robert, James, and Peter were li- literate. Um, their letters from Robert to Jefferson. Jefferson also kept a list of all the letters he got and all the letters he sent out. Their letters from Robert to him, the correspondence between them, but it's gone. It's been lost. And so, so we don't know whether she could. We know nothing about her. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. <laughs> In Thomas Jefferson's correspondence with John Adams, he refers to certain parts of the Bible. I, more specifically, I think it was the concept of a miracle as a pile of dung. I was wondering how um, these more radical beliefs affected how he was respected in a more religious time. Mm-hmm. Well, it caused him a lot of problems. When he was running for office, people in New England, and we think of New England as, I mean, New England was the religious place then. I mean, they had established religions. And people were saying, bury your Bibles, because they thought he was going to come and take away the Bible. They said if he's elected, incest and adultery will be common. You know, I mean, just... No, no, non sequitur, but that's, that's what they, they thought. He kept, people had a sense that he was skeptical of religion, but he was very, very private about his religion. He doesn't tell his family that. He begins his process of creating what, he, what is called the Jefferson Bible, but basically the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, when he's president, he comes back to it as an older man. He basically takes a razor blade and scissors out all of the miracles and creates a Jefferson Bible. And what Peter and I talk, we have a chapter on this, and we talk about this, is trying to create an American civic religion. He believed that, there, it, he believed that Jesus was a wonderful teacher, but you should follow the teachings of Jesus and not the things that the priests, he said, the people had made up and said that Jesus said. Um, so he was always, he was considered an atheist. He was, and that 
was a that was a big deal. So he really kept his he didn't talk openly about his religion, but people could sort of gauge uh, that he was uh, and from things that he said to other people. The rumor was that he was he was an atheist and that he he hated religion. But it really, as I said, he wasn't an atheist. He thought that one day everybody would be a Unitarian. That was his prediction. That one day. And he considered himself a Christian, but he thought, he said he's a primitive Christian. He believed in the, he thought, what he thought were the true teachings of Jesus and not, not the miracles. But he did have to keep that secret. If people had known that he'd cut up the Bible, it would have been over. Thank you uh, for coming to Berkeley. It's a pleasure mm-hmm. listening to you. I, I'm a retired lawyer. Uh, I seem to recall 50 years ago when I was an undergraduate reading a book that characterized the particularly cruel form of slavery that uh, was active in the United States as contrasted with Catholic countries like um, more South American. Mm-hmm. And I'm... This I, morning. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm... I'm... I'm sorry. It's a shock to me to hear that he couldn't imagine after a 20 or 30 year affair with uh, Sally Hemming and being the patriarch that he is and as well-read as he is and the long history of Roman patriarchs having their slaves manage their estates and, and the, in the Islamic world, slavery taking a form that didn't degrade people in the way that it does here, or at least didn't necessarily do it. Um, what I'm wondering is, is how much of it had to do with Catholicism, realism, hierarchy and corporate state in Europe mm-hmm. as contrasted with uh, nominalism, uh, enlightenment, Locke, new science, new way of looking at the world, and the new world, mm-hmm. and Protestant energy in the new world. Well, it, you know, people write about this a lot, the supposedly better slavery in the Catholic countries versus Protestant countries. Um, I think it's almost as similar. It's the same thing today. I mean, the Europeans are racist in their own way. And we're racist in our own way. <laughs> Americans are racist in our own way. It's, it's a matter of the culture definitely matters. I mean, in Catholic countries, you do have the recording. I mean, they keep records of the births of, of people because they want them to be baptized. I mean, the Catholics are there to save souls, and the Protestants didn't seem to care as much about that. Um, and so... There's a very different understanding about family in Catholic countries, in, in, in the civil system where you cannot, for example, cannot disinherit your children unless they do something really, 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 really bad. And in the English system, you don't have to leave your kids anything. There's no forced heirship other than by contract, namely the marriage contract, dower and curtsy. So you come, there's a different understanding about family between you know the, the British and the British, you're either black or you're white. You know, and the Europeans, I mean, the the continental people have, you know, they have gradations, and it it it, it may actually matter that you are you know part white or whatever. Um, the French saw the mixed class as sort of a buffer between blacks and and, and whites. And, and one letter, I remember one letter says that if we treat them better, they will side with us instead of their darker cousins. The British don't do that. You're black or you're white. You're in or you're out. And 
You know, that sounds harsh, but in a way, it's interesting that the true civil rights movement among blacks happens here because, and I think it's because blacks never, I mean, sure, there are always people who play, you know, color consciousness and stuff like that. But seriously, after the end of slavery, blacks and whites of all colors were thrown into one pot. You're all black. And we were forced to cooperate with one another. We never really got this caste thing going as seriously as it exists in other places where everybody's pretending that there is no race in Brazil. I was in Cuba in 2010, and I was at a meet at the university there, and I said, well, what about the racial situation? And this person told me the revolution ended race. And I'm like, and the black people sitting in the room, I could sort of see them like, you know, I don't know about that. No, I mean, he is, he is British. He's a product of that system, and his racial attitudes are very much of that binary of black and white. Now, in the end, when he fixes out his will, and he says, you know, the Virginia law of 1806 said that in order to remain, if you were freed, in order to remain in Virginia, you had to have permission of the legislature. He asked the legislature to allow the people that he's freeing to remain in Virginia because this is where their families and their connections are. Now, when he was doing that, there were some people who were freeing slaves on the condition that they go to Liberia. He could have done that, but he doesn't send them to Liberia because he wants them because he knows these people, and he wants them to stay in Virginia. And that's the answer as to why all black people should remain in America, because that's where our families and connections are. But Jefferson is speaking, thinking abstractly, but in his day-to-day life, the stuff he said, everything he says and notice in the state of Virginia, you can find something that he's doing on the plantation that in real life, in real time, that's completely in contravention of that. And I just think that's the difference between thinking uh, abstractly the catechism of white supremacy and the actual lived experience of the person who is dealing face-to-face with, with people. One last very short question, and it belongs to you. Oh, thank you so much. Hello. Hello. Um, you know, on the, um, the question of whether slavery would have uh, ceased to exist, um, as some of the founding fathers apparently believed, um, it's, it's always seemed to me that the Louisiana Purchase basically guaranteed that slavery would continue to exist for X number of years. Mm-hmm. And um, because of um, the, you know, the soil depletion and all of that stuff that, that was true of the eastern mm-hmm. um, states. And um, it also seems to me that Jefferson must have known that. Mm-hmm. Didn't he? I mean, well, or, the or he, problem, should have, he, he should have known that, that know, buying Louisiana would I mean, um, um, change the calculus. Well, he had the idea. He had a brief moment. The idea was that he believed in a, in a, in a notion of diffusion, that if slaves were spread out across uh, the, this territory, that it would be easier to free them. He looked at the example of New England. New England was able to emancipate enslaved people because there are not that many black people in New England. And numbers really matter. That's something we don't talk about very much today, but even then, numbers matter. So he thought that that's what would happen. Now, we know that's ridiculous. We look at that and say that's ridiculous, but he's saying in another region where there were spread out, not that many, we could free them. The other thing 
is that slavery was already in Virginia. The Spanish had slaves. They were wedded to that very much. In order for the federal government, we would have had a war in 1804, and, and when he's president, if they had tried to root, they had made the, the choice for slavery already. So, I mean, you know, there's a book, John Craig Hammond has written a book about, about this, uh, contesting slavery, and um, um, talks about the Louisiana Territory, that people write about it as if it's this sort of land that's just sort of out there, but in fact, there are plantations out there already. And the federal government would have to send an army. They, they would have to fight to get to make that uh, to to sort of end it. So, yeah, I mean, he had an he knew that slavery wasn't going to go away. But this diffusion idea, which we we think is ridiculous, but it comes from his his idea that this extra land would spread slaves out. There would be few and then they could, in fact, be emancipated just as they had done in New England. But that's not what happened. The land was too good. Uh, settler, it wasn't just the Spanish who were out there. The settlers from the east went out, and, they, and everybody wanted to be, even if they didn't own slaves, they aspired to. And they brought their slaves west, and that's, that's what caused the expansion of slavery and eventually what caused the Civil War, uh, as they wanted to try to make a nation of slaves, a slave nation instead of a free nation. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.